welcome to Cyclist Magazine Podcast. I'm your host, Emma Cole, and I've also got our co-host, James Spender, with me. So our guest today is an absolute stormer. She won her first gold medal age just 14 in 1992, her 17th gold medal just last year, and in that time she's amassed 40 world titles in swimming and cycling. She's also broken 77 world records, including the Paracycling Hour records. She also runs her own race team. She captains her own race team and she heads up the Skoda DSI Cycling Academy. And she's also the South Yorkshire Active Travel Commissioner. And she's our most successful Paralympian ever and one of Britain's most successful ever athletes, Dame Sarah Storey. But before we jump into that interview, we're going to run you through what we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling. James, what's on your list today? What's on my list today? Well, um, it's just the most tediously boring, annoying thing to say, isn't it, in this country? But we are animals at the end of the day and we have to bond over something. And I'm bonding uh, with cycling and with other animals and hating at the same time. Weather, that's just a thing. I, it's just really, uh, to borrow your phrase, Emma, your well-worn phrase, grinding my gears, going out and getting absolutely saturated. And I just can't decide if jeans are just the worst idea for walking or cycling or they're not too bad. Because if you think about it, jeans came from... Basically, people, I don't know, I think Levi's started selling their Levi's jeans back in like the 1800s to people that were prospecting for gold. So they're like working trousers. Um, But I just got saturated in my jeans um, cycling back from the station the other day, having also been for a walk in my jeans, ill-advised. Those jeans are Rafa cycling jeans, which I'd say I'd normally like, but simultaneously I've sort of been disliking them for their waterloggedness. So, yeah, the weather, haven't been liking the weather, have been laughing, uh, laughing, laughing, <laughs> Rafa cycling jeans, um, and have been, yeah, just questioning my general uh, sartorial choices. So I would ask anyone out there, I'll ask you actually, Emma, because you're right in front of me, any any tips, any tips on lower legwear, waterproof lower legwear, what do you do? Well, I mean, jeans would not be my go-to. I have to put that out there. They they just soak up water. It's probably the last thing I'd wear. I would go for, oof, tricky. To be honest, I'd go for a pair of, like, sports leggings. Yeah. And then, depending, like, have my clean clothes in my backpack and then get changed. Very good. Depending. That's probably what I'd go for, but obviously depends what you're up against what the activity is. Would you ever do waterproof trousers? If I was hiking in the Highlands in Scotland, yes. Well. <laughs> Otherwise. Funny you should mention that because I'm going off hiking in the Highlands of Scotland in a couple of weeks. And I think it's going to be raining. Uh, so, yeah, as a bit of a side tangent. Another question. I mean, I'm looking at some waterproof, psych- uh, some waterproof trousers, um, which go as high as, like, 500 quid i'm not looking at those ones north face makes them look like 500 pounds mm, very nice but they go as low as 8.99 for, 8.99 for like some regatta Ooh. and i'm like is that is that just the worst idea 8.99 trousers are they on sale or is that full price well it's a very good question they are on sale they are reduced from 20 okay. quid uh 20 shouldn't drop one's teeth 20 pounds <laughs> um and reduced to 8.99 i just kind of think is that is that just too cheap 
you go out there and you know from the off something happens and then you've got no trousers at all when you're <laughs> walking through the highlands <laughs> like a true scot <laughs> well see i would usually argue you should go mid-range okay like so that but then it just depends because they might be really really good trousers i would look at some reviews that's very true that'd, that'd be my first port of call well, as we both know, you can't trust the reviews that you read online. <laughs> so true. Rubbish. <laughs> but anyway, uh, enough about me. How about you, Emma? What have you been loving in the world of cycling? So contrary to your... Actually, this might not be cycling, but still contrary to your comment about weather, I really like running in the rain. So whilst I don't like cycling in the rain, it means I get off my bike and I go for a run because there's something about running when the elements are hitting you and you're like, oh, I just feel so alive. I feel great. So I'm a big fan of running in the rain. Um, I've also been testing a Brompton P-Line, which I Ooh. just absolutely love. Oh. It's such a dream. Can't get enough. Um, I'm on, conver- on convert, total Brompton convert. <laughs> and then also a really cool ultra cyclist is currently cycling around the eight countries that joined the Arctic Circle. He's doing 4,000 kilometres. And just stop watching him and looking at what he's up to. It's mega. His beard is like permanently snowy and the condition's <laughs> just mad. And I, yeah, I mean, I'm just getting really inspired for my big winter snowy cycling trip. I was going to say, yeah, you're gearing up. You're loving, you're loving the poor weather from running. You're following <laughs> some dude who's cycling 4,000 kilometres. Yeah, Omar De Felice. Wow. He cycled from Rome to COP26 in November. Nice. And now he's doing around the Arctic Circle to like raise awareness about climate change. Um, and yeah, he's, he's just really cool. Man. And he's done most of the ultra races and stuff. Oh, yeah. How long's that? So how long has he been on the road for? Did he set off for COP in like, what, July or something? I suppose... um, so COP was November. He just rode from Rome to Glasgow. Yep. That's not that long <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. And then he's only recently started, oh gosh, maybe two weeks ago, he started his Arctic, he's, he's called it like the Arctic Circle trip, but it's not. He's just going to eight of the countries that are in it. Um, but yeah, I don't know how long it's going to take him, but he's in like uh, eastern, southern Russia or something. And it just looked, oof, brutal. Yeah, no, I bet. I think that's like one of the world's toughest sportives is there's like a kind of trans-Siberian number. Because there's things like, you know, I mean, they're all really tough. You interviewed um, Fiona Colbert mm. in Cyclist Magazine, which we also do. <laughs> We're always supposed to say that. Anyway, you can pick up some paper and read about it if you like. But Emma did a fantastic interview with Fiona, who won the transcontinental race in 2019. Is that right? Um, absolutely smashed it out of the park. Um, first ever um, outright um, female winner, but also just an incredible and athlete. rookie and rookie, exactly. And that is an insane thing. But one thing I guess that other you know what um, cycling around Arctic circles etc. entails is that weather, which is just like a that's just the next level. So I salute you for enjoying running in the rain i too don't mind a bit of a run in the rain i wouldn't tend to wear jeans for that I, i'm you know, <laughs> smart enough to wear some wear some shorts uh but it is that yeah it's that kind of challenge of um being beasted and then simultaneously feeling mm. like you've beaten the elements as you exactly. run back into your beautifully warm uh fossil fuel powered house mm, uh, feeling feeling smug um but don't worry because someone else is cycling around the arctic yeah. to raise awareness um, well, so that's fine. 
Um, but that's what you're liking. How about what you're disliking? Uh, I've got a bit of a negative dislike. Obviously, it's a negative, but this is a bit of a sad one. I do. I know, get ready. So recently, I think ever since the highway code changed, I feel like there's a lot of negativity on the roads towards cyclists from Ooh. coming from motorists. And I've been seeing a lot of cyclists on the floor all really shaking oh, up really? around the roads of London. Yeah, which is really sad. Oh, right. um, maybe it's just because of the highway code changing and I've become more like attuned to it or something. But yeah, that's something I've seen a lot of, which is yeah, obviously really, really bad. Um, and then on a slightly lighter note... I'm also really disliking, I don't know if you're into Wordle, but the American spellings on Wordle, yes, yes. I'm not a fan. Yes, I can't believe, like, th- what I did like about Wordle, I mean, this is Wordle chat now, so I'll tell you what, <laughs> skip forward by three, five minutes if you want to get into the Dame Sarah story, actual podcast chat. But Wordle, what I did like finding out was that Wordle was started by a bloke called Wardle. I think it's called Richard Wardle. No way! So, Wardle's Wordle. <laughs> Uh, which is quite nice. But yeah, as soon as the new... And then first off, he was like, oh yeah, you know, I'm never going to sell it. Just did it for a bit of fun. Oh yeah, pull the other one, mate. It's got bells on. Then sell it to the New York Times and overnight, favour. Five-letter word. No, no, favour's a six-letter word, my friends. Next up, humour. There's nothing funny about that. (laughs) (laughs) Which leads me to believe that uh, as much as I'm sure that the original kind of like engine behind it must just be uh, a computer just like selects five letter words from the dictionary. Mm. But basically, it's um, automatically generated. Someone sat there and went, ha you know what we're going to do? We're going to really get on those guys. <laughs> like, and just decided they just push those American spellings on us um, straight yeah. off the bat. There's, that's no small coincidence. No, it's not at all. Do you have a particular word that you always go for at the beginning? That's a really good question. So... No, but I wonder if maybe you should. It, I, I feel like you may as well because that's probably the most tactically astute thing to do. But then I sort of think like, does that ruin part of the joy of the game? Trying to like play it in that way. But I would, I, I would definitely try and find words where you know I'm looking. You know, we're looking minimum two vowels. Mm. Um, hopefully, there's going to be an S and a T in there as well, <laughs> or an R. You know, some useful letters like that. Um, but a really good one for many vowels, doula. It's quite a good one, as in um, Ooh, yeah. kind of midwife birthing type partner. Quite um, ratio, quite like. Ratio, you gave me some good ideas. Yeah. Um, and I just quite like the word fruit. It's not fruit. the best one. It's not, <laughs> many, not that many R's, but, you know. Oh, sorry, F's. Uh, but how about yourself? Do you always kick off with a certain word? Oh, I don't, but I always, for some reason, every time I look at it, I'm always like, oh, I can't wait till it's pizza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's all I can think about. <laughs> that will, there will absolutely be that day. I did. What's your What's your best? Have you got a Have you got a hole in one? A word in one? No, or a word in two. I think oh, I'm not going to be lame and check it, but I think my like three quite regularly. I think I got that on a Friday. Maybe I got a two on a Friday, and I was Boom. like, "Oh, hello weekend." <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Uh, I actually i got I got a two the first <sighs> time. I've got, got Robin on, oh, nice. on Sunday. Yeah, I think that kicked off with ratio. Anyway, uh, enough of this word we'll yeah, chat. Sorry. We'll do another. We'll do another podcast on word. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's t- it's horribly addictive. My brother-in-law plays it, um, and he just my mum hates him because he's just. Con- I shouldn't say that. He never listens to this. Just because he's constantly putting up his bloody score. 
Uh, on his Facebook. He's one of, yeah, on his he's Facebook. a Facebook. Well, yeah, I mean, he's like over, he's 40. So he hasn't, I don't know, he shouldn't really be on Facebook. He, anyway, he still uses Facebook. <laughs> my mum's, I mean, I, I allow my mum to use Facebook. She's the older generation, the yeah. current custodians. Um, but yeah, she's like, I wish you would just post up these stupid squares. <laughs> Oh gosh, I love that. It's so funny. <laughs> right. Okay. Sorry, sorry, listeners. Uh, I do hope that you stuck with us because coming up is Sarah's story, and I don't even want to say it's it's an awful pun, but yes, she's got some really good stories. Just before we're coming on, Emma just told me that not only do you ride, not only have you swum, so obviously you know these things are to an incredibly high level. Emma, what were the other ones you were listing off that Sarah's been pretty handy at? Well, I read that you're quite good at um, cross-country. There was also table tennis, which I thought was quite fun. I wanted to delve into a bit of... I love table tennis. Um, And there was just like basically every sport under the sun. I think it was netball as well that came up as well. I was the girl at school who did every single sport going. Um, So I was playing on an adult netball... an adult table tennis team as part of the training for my age group uh, events and I was under 13 and under 15 county champion uh, for three years in a row in Cheshire County table tennis and alongside that I was playing on our school netball team and then when I was 14 I was part of the Cheshire netball setup but unfortunately they found out I was an international swimmer as well and they didn't want to select me anymore so I was uh, probably the only part of my sporting career where I didn't get the choice not to do something so I guess it's I feel fairly fortunate sort of 30 years later, but at the time I was a little bit peeved because I was a goal attack and I was a tall, Uh, strong, capable athlete. Yeah. So I was, I was, I really, I really love netball. So occasionally I'll get a message about a mum's netball group or something. I'm like, oh, that'd be really cool. And just make sure I don't get injured. (laughs) So I was just one of those kids who enjoyed always being outside and sporty. And that always helps. I was, I was a good uh, student as well, but I think that's largely because I always had this break to do my sport at lunchtime after school. Where did it kind of come from? Is it something that ran in your family, siblings, parents or? Um, Well, my parents are very outdoorsy people as well. They weren't. um, My dad played lacrosse and um, he played rugby. We've always had a cricket within our family and we just love sport. And I think it was just that encouraging you to be fit and healthy and active. And then the natural competitive side would lead you into competitive sport. I also went to an incredibly good primary school where the head teacher, Chris Parker, was just into all sport. And he recognised the benefit of that sport for the academic side of study. Um, So all of the school learned to swim at the school swimming club. um, And we all did every sport possible. You know, most afternoons were spent outside uh, and we just did a lot more. We had a lot more freedom in the curriculum probably back then as well. Uh, and I just absolutely loved sport. So when did you first kind of get that inkling that sport might be your life? I mean, as we know, you won a gold medal at just 14 years old um, in swimming, the Barcelona 92 Olympics. And I'm assuming that didn't happen overnight. You didn't just do swimming for about six months and then pop to the Barcelona pool one day and there you go. You're building up to it. When did you kind of seriously get stuck in to swimming as what ended up being you know, a profession for a large part of your sporting career? Well, I learned to swim as a four-year-old at the school club um, on a Saturday and I very quickly progressed through each of the badges that are so you know uh, familiar to everybody. 
and I'd done my 3000 meter badge by the time I was seven. Um, and I got through all of the badges and I joined um, Stockport Metro Swimming Club as a 10 year old. And at the time I was told I was too old to join a swimming club. Um, I think the approach to things has changed a little bit over the years and hopefully a 10 year old wouldn't get told the same thing today. Uh, but I just quickly progressed through the groups at uh, Stockport Metro and managed to catch up to my peers fairly quickly. But I also at that point discovered that parasport was a thing. I had no idea the Paralympic Games existed until I was about 12 years old. So for me, it was never a goal um, to be you know, an international swimmer in Paralympic swimming. I just wanted to be the best athlete I could be. I always wanted to compete for my country, but I didn't really know exactly how that would formulate for me. Uh, and when I discovered the Paralympic Games that I um, would qualify in the, the S10 category, which is the, the category for the people with a minimal impairment, that kind of changed my outlook on swimming. And suddenly I was doing even bigger personal best times every time I got into the competition pool. Um, I was coached at the point by a guy called Alistair Johnson, who is a deaf Olympian, and he knew a little bit about disability sport uh, because, of course, back in 91, 1990-1991 there was no internet everything was done via leaflets or um, via posters on the wall of a leisure center you you know you had to ring a number in a directory I don't know it was a lot more difficult so I found the address of a lady who was in charge of the northwest disability swim squad uh, and I wrote to her for 18 months and eventually she wrote back uh, and she uh, invited me to a, a swimming gala that was going to be taking place the following weekend. So it's a good job the letter arrived in time, otherwise I would have missed it. Um, and it was really bizarre because it was mainly a, a swimming competition for people who were using swimming for therapy. And I was the only one who was really a, a realistic uh, competition chance. Um, and I was very fortunate that there was a lady who was there called Mayor, um, called Trina Curran, and she knew the people who were dealing with the national team. And so it was very much a case of being in the right place at the right time. I couldn't have found this information out unless I had been at that swimming pool on that day. So, again, those sorts of things potentially wouldn't happen anymore because you've got infinite amount of information that you can find and other avenues to explore. Um, but I very quickly was accepted onto the British swim team. Um, about six weeks after that very first gala. Um, and that was the 16th of November, 1991. Yeah, it was it was very sudden in the end, um, but it felt like to me as a, well, I was 14 by that point, I'd been spending the best part of two years trying to find out if I'd be good enough. Wow. And I mean, when you won that first gold medal, like, do you still remember the feelings that you had? Oh, yes. I mean, it was just the most incredible thing to go and do you know I'd never been away without my parents until I went to the games in Barcelona um, and I had this uh, Olympic village to explore with well, I wasn't the only 14 year old there was three of us who were 14 on the team uh, there was a 15 year old and a 16 year old so it was a small group of teenagers who would hang out together um, and we'd have our mentors the older swimmers and the other athletes from other sports who would kind of keep an eye on us and keep you know look out for us and help us to kind of navigate the village and all of the the potential distractions um, but it was just the most immense thing to go and do and I remember going to my very first race of the games which was the day after the opening ceremony and it wasn't my best event but it was an event with no pressure on it and I ended up coming away with a, a silver medal, a massive British record. Um, and it really set me up for the whole week, because if I was in good shape for the event that was kind of a supplementary event, then how well was I going to go in my main events, which were the 100 metres backstroke and the 200 metres individual medley? 
Um, I was also a significant part of the relay team. So I came back from those games with six medals um, and it was just something I, I, I just wanted to be able to do every week. I just wished that the whole games experience was a permanent place to live. And how did that kind of translate to you as, you know, you're just still a kid though, you're 14 um, and yeah, you've got the limelight shone on you when the games have been televised. When you come home, what was it like coming back to seeing your family and your school friends and just the area, you know, we've heard about gold post boxes these days that um, champions get, but I'm guessing things were slightly different back in the nineties. Yeah, very different and very much focused around local newspapers. So I was on the front page of every local newspaper, um, you know, a hero's welcome within my own village and within, you know, Stockport, which is where I was training um, winning local awards. So I was the first female recipient of the Manchester Evening News Sports Personality of the Year. Um, in 1992, I, there was people like um, Martin Afire, um, David White, Lee Sharp, all of the big footballers were there. And there was this, I was 15 by the time the, the, the ceremony was held. And there was me as a 15-year-old sat on the table with my mum and dad and I was the one that won. So every month, the Manchester Evening News would kind of highlight a personality of, of the sporting world. There was 11 men and me. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I'm going up on stage to collect this award. And the winner of the trophy was supposed to get a year's supply of Boddington's. But I was underage. <laughs> so my dad was incredibly gutted that there was no beer to be had. And I got um, a very beautiful rose bowl and a massive bunch of flowers. Um, but it was this moment that you, you watch television and you see those footballers and rugby players on the television every single weekend. Whereas I'd had to share the limelight with uh, uh, Lord Chris Holmes, as he is now, six gold medals in Barcelona. Uh, Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson, four gold medals in Barcelona. And we had an hour of highlights every three or four days. So we all had to share that very small amount of coverage. And there was me, you know, getting this big award in Manchester ahead of all these professional men. Um, and it really was quite daunting, but also very exciting. Um, and it was always very local at that point. I guess now it's very different because you can travel much more easily. I remember going down to London for some of the awards ceremonies down there and it was nearly three and a half hours on the train um you think about that now it's like wow we're complaining at an hour and 50 <laughs> amazing yeah we spoke uh, to chris borman on the podcast um and yeah he he said a, a similar kind of thing coming back to his little village that he um was living in and only sort of really realizing that he'd made it when he walked into the local chippy and the guy said don't worry these chips are on us kind of thing and yeah i mean you know Time, times have changed and over that time you changed a lot mainly because you went from swimming which let's face it you were really very good at <laughs> into cycling which for most people one of those things would have been fine and you were competing at the top of you know the sharp end of swimming for what 15 years and then 2005 you thought I might have a go at this cycling malarkey why how did that come about I started, well, I'd been cycling um, as a commuter tool, I suppose you could say, when I was doing my A-levels. Um, so I'd go from my college, which was no longer on the route from work for my mum. So I'd take myself from college down to Stockport to go training. Whereas when I'd been at high school, my mum would be able to come past school to take me. So I had that little bit of extra independence that was needed. So I'd, I'd cycle to, 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 to swim training. 
Um, but then when I uh, came back from the games in Athens in, in 2004, I had realised that although the Manchester Velodrome had been there for a number of years and I'd been into the Velodrome as part of the Commonwealth Games in 2002, because I think that's where the buses went from after the ceremonies at the stadium, I'd never been onto the track and I'd met this cycling team in Athens. I'd met my now husband as well. And they said, you know, you should go and try and learn to ride the track just for a bit of fun. And I always did a bit of cross training at the end of every, you know, Paralympic cycle just to keep myself fit and healthy before the formal training started again. So I went to the Manchester Velodrome and um, the rest is history, I suppose you could say. Cycling became a training tool for me in early 2005 because I wasn't allowed to swim. I had a number of ear infections and I decided instead of going back into running, I would use the bike as a fitness tool. But by the time my ear infections got better, I'd been racing a bike because I'm a, a competitive soul. <laughs> and I was really curious about track cycling. And I'd also raced on the road. Um, I'd even gone to the European Championships and, and won the road race, uh, broken the world record over 3000 metres. And it was just one of those whirlwinds. So whereas with swimming, it was kind of a bit bigger build up suddenly in cycling, my you know physicality, the engine I had and my aptitude for sport um, all converged in the space of about three weeks during which the Tour de France was on. So I was watching TV constantly um, and then I got to race at the end of that. So it was very, very a big whirlwind and very exciting, but also gave me that opportunity to make a decision for myself. It's widely reported that I had I was forced out of the water. But fortunately, the truth of the matter is I got to choose, which is another really kind of privileged position I feel now, um, you know, all these years later, because although I went back to swimming to do what was my sort of hanging up my goggles meet, my retirement meet, if you like, uh, and I very nearly got back to world record. I was about two tenths outside of the 100 metres freestyle world record at the time. I realised I could leave on the top on my own terms and turn to two wheels, you know, with a, a blank sheet of paper pretty much in front of me. And I didn't really know if I'd be good enough, but I was excited to try. And when you got on that bike, because you've already been to the Paralympics as a swimmer, were you thinking, oh, yeah, I want to take this to, a, to the Paralympics? Did you have a moment when you were like, OK, let's do this? I think when I first got on the bike for the Europeans in 2005, it was a case of, well, I can't go to the Commonwealth Games swimming trials, so I might as well try this and see what happens. Um, when I got onto my bike as a funded athlete, because at that point I was still funded to swim, although I wasn't able to swim, and UK Sport had con committed to fund me through to the first World Championships on a bike so that I could have that chance to kind of properly transition into the sport. Um, it was then at that, that point that I realised that the times in training were going in the right direction and I was you know, on to lower my own world record by that point. And that's when we found out as well that the, the games were going to be in London. So just before the Europeans in 2005, the, the games for London were announced. So for me, it was a case of, well, I think I'll be too old as a swimmer in London. I'm no Sasha Kindred, who is a, a peer of mine who, who competed in London and Rio, and we are the same age. Um, and he he was incredible. And I didn't ever think I was in his kind of field as it were so I was like I do I, I do have this kind of opportunity to prolong my athletic career and um, it's a chance worth taking and as Tani says frequently I'm better on two wheels than I ever was in the water and she wished I could have changed sooner but I think it's it's one of those where you just feel so lucky that you did get the chance at the right time to choose a new sport and to try and excel at it. And how eat well probably the, the word is not easy how difficult was it to 
not just transition in terms of readapt to new equipment, a new arena to do it in, new teammates, presumably new coaches. You're not taking over a coach from swimming into cycling, but also just financially because the Olympics is typically, you know, today it's a little bit different since the 70s and Russia had state-sponsored athletes that kind of changed things. But it's, t- it's typically a very poorly paid amateur sporting um, pursuit, even though it's massive. How how does that kind of um, work? Does someone just say, oh, you're on our books now, so come over here and we'll sort you out with a bike and come and start riding and this person's going to coach you? Or are you like you were saying earlier with the swimming back in the day, you're kind of writing to people and saying, I'd quite like to do this and hoping that someone goes, yeah, you can jump in the back of the van and we'll take you to practice me X. I think for me, I'd learned a huge amount through my, my swimming career about how to find the people that are part of your core team. And I was really fortunate that I met some incredibly good people um, when I first went down to the velodrome. Um, people who put Paul West, a guy who taught me to ride on the velodrome and Marshall Thomas are absolutely brilliant at getting me onto that, those two wheels. And they quickly introduced me to Gary Brickley, who's my coach, and he has been since 2005. So to be able to kind of click with someone and realise that you're talking the same language, they, he got to know me very quickly. Um, and also Barney as my husband is kind of that kind of sounding board every single day. So you have that you know, level of comfort with people that you know you can trust. And very quickly, we built up a rapport. So from a coaching side of things, it's been a matter of adding to that team with people who've come and gone as time has progressed. But actually, when you look at the people who supported me into Tokyo, you've got the guy that made my handlebars for the, both the track and the road bikes. He was involved with my very first set of handlebars for Beijing in 2008. Um, which was when Chris Boardman was part of the Secret Squirrel Club. And he's a, a close colleague of mine now for, for a number of different reasons, both in you know our professional lives and active travel and also you know through the sponsorship of bikes and um, to story racing teams. So you actually have a relatively small network of people that continually you return to because you know and trust that their judgment is going to be exactly right. And there's no kind of flowers around it. It's just dead straight analysis that you need to hear. So for me, I feel like I've been really fortunate, but then also blessed with a good sense of good judgment. I think when it comes to the financial side, once I completed university, um, I set up my own business so that I could do public and motivational speaking. And I've always been a dual career athlete. So I've always had that opportunity to supplement my income. We do have um, the National Lottery funded programs now, which provide um, a contribution to your living and training costs. So there are always going to be extra things that you need to be able to afford to do outside of that contribution. Um, And that's helped me to build a dual career. So whilst it means that you do work two jobs in many ways, or in my case, about seven, um, it gives you that opportunity to kind of develop yourself as an individual um, keep very busy, <laughs> uh, but also just explore and have a complete ownership of what you're doing. And I think for me, that's one of the things that I learned in swimming was that you are, you know, the central pillar of what you can do. You need to be able to stand up on your own two feet and no one's going to be there stood holding your hand on the blocks in the start gate on the start line. As an athlete, it's your performance, whether you're an individual or part of a team. No one can hold your hand across the finish line. You have to do that for yourself. So taking on that was not really a sort of too alien, really. It's all part of how you need to be as a resilient individual competing. 
And do you think that um, attitude was quite helpful in the Tokyo Games? Because I imagine it was quite difficult not having everyone that you're used to having there, like um, your husband, your children. Was that quite a, I guess it's quite a good thing for you to have gone through? Well, I think being resilient was a really important skill to have in the Tokyo Games. Uh, It was the harshest of environments to be competing as an athlete. And actually the competition um, was almost the easy bit because staying on the right side of the playbook um, calculating whether or not you are likely to be somebody's contact, making sure that you kind of took ownership of everything. And unfortunately for us in cycling, we were um, satellite sports, so we weren't part of the Olympic Village. So we had dreadful food as well. Um, the food at the both the track and the road venues was awful. I'd taken my own rice cooker. Um, I cooked my own porridge. I cooked my own rice and quinoa. I had as much control over my diet as I possibly could because um, I had this inkling. I don't know why. Maybe it's just experience that we weren't going to have the easiest of rides. So I was prepared for every eventuality. Um, fortunately, the team provided us with an extra bag so that we could take a bag of food and I maximized that out. I think most of us did the same. Um, but it was there where the, the experience really counted and having that level of understanding of the fact that nobody can do it for you. And especially in COVID times where you do just have to be so careful. In the end, there was no cases within the team. But going into that, you couldn't take that for granted. You had to be absolutely sure you could manage regardless. And if the rest of the team had gone down, you needed to be able to survive. So there was so many could have situations that you needed to be prepared for. So psychologically, having that resilience and that independence was really important. And it was so hard not having home comforts and not having that kind of emotional support. And I don't think anybody really had realised just how difficult. There was nobody who could you could just call on and say, I've forgotten this or I've not done that. Can you help me out? None of that was possible this time. So you've been, I think I've counted correctly, to eight Paralympics. Yeah. Yeah. And... Kicked off in Barcelona, most recently, um, the confusingly named Japan 2020. You know, they couldn't throw away all that merchandise, could they? So they just ran it anyway. Um, of those eight Olympics, um, the COVID bubble does sound very difficult. But what was, what's the one you'd most likely to forget for, you'd most like to forget for the uh, Olympic village aspect? You know, we've heard about the infamous cardboard beds in Japan. Um, and which is the one that you'd love to return to, which was the kind of perfect sweet spot for Olympic organisation? London 2012 would be the one to return to without a shadow of a doubt. You know, home games, amazing crowds, um, no aeroplanes needed, no bike boxes. <laughs> Everything was loaded into a vehicle and, and taken a lot less packing. So London was absolutely incredible. Um, you know, the, the cardboard beds were the least of our problems, to be fair. <laughs> in Japan and sadly we didn't go to the Olympic Village there so that's the one that's easily forgotten because you didn't get the the same uh, environment Um, but I think it's you know every game stands out for different reasons good or bad and we obviously speak about before the games in Japan we talked about the games in Atlanta as being the most challenging of all because um, certainly for the Paralympics, um, they'd closed half the village, they shut down most of the the kitchens, Um, even the organisers had taken the flags to Sydney or given the flags over to the Sydney organisers, so they had to borrow them back for the Paralympic Games. So there was two organising committees in Atlanta and, and they didn't ever speak. So there was all sorts of challenges around those particular logistics, and which meant that was the most sort of talked about for being 
the le- the less best, <laughs> if you like, um, until of course the games in the, te- the you know the lockdown games happened, and it was a completely different experience. But each experience provides you with a new opportunity to learn about yourself, about you know how you interact with that competition environment, and also um, you know it gives you a chance to compete for those medals, and that's what you have to break it down to. And we all had the choice not to go to the you know, to, to Japan, if we'd not wanted to deal with the, the challenges, but we were prepared to stand up to those challenges to be, to be able to kind of test our physical, physical status after everything that had happened. And, you know, training on, on the turbo cyclists, we were probably fairly fortunate, you know, we didn't need paddling pools in the back garden, but I think, you know, the, the challenge of, can I still be successful? Can I still rise to the challenge after everything? Uh, for me, the answer was yes. Um, all of that resilience I feel like I've built up over the years very much paid off for me. But for some, it wasn't the same. And everybody, you know, came away remembering different parts. And the, the, the way the team pulled together in in Japan was just extraordinary. And, and the, the, the behind the scenes work that the British Paralympic Association and Paralympics GB did was just off the scale, which means that when you go to a less hostile environment with less playbook rules, you know, all of those lessons will stand us in even greater stead. So does that mean that you're gearing up for Paris 2024? It certainly does. Paris is two and a half years away. I have a sheet of paper here with sort of every every month mapped out until those games, which is exciting and also quite frightening. Um, but I don't see, uh, I, I wouldn't want to end with the games of Tokyo being the place where nobody was there to watch my dad has got two very poignant photos from the road race in London with 10,000 people behind me at the finish and the road race in uh, in Japan with nobody. <laughs> and it's that is just like the image in their living room of, um, you know, two completely opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, so hopefully the games in Paris is going to feel as close to a home games as possible. Maybe we can, I've said this so many times, maybe we can all just cycle there together because then, you know, I don't even mind towing my equipment behind me if I have to in a trailer, but it's just hopefully going to be that opportunity to kind of get back to some sort of normality potentially. Is there enough room in the trailer for the rice cooker? Hopefully I won't need the rice cooker. I mean, the French, they're really good with their food. Terrible coffee, though. Terrible coffee. That's all right. We can take <laughs> our own coffee. But um, no, I think they'd be very offended if we didn't think their food was good. <laughs> this, this, No, this is very true. Um, but as you say, you, you wear many, many different hats um, as a professional cyclist, someone who runs um, a team, which we'll touch on um, in a minute. But also... You know, you've come through an academy-style system, which you're now finding yourself heading up, which is the Skoda DSI Cycling Academy. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? That's specifically targeting a certain age group of cyclists, all right? It's not just, you know, for like an eight-year-old who might be coming through. Yeah, I've had the opportunity back in 2018 to start working with Skoda, and we identified that the women's under 23 category um, is developing. And I think we've found out um, in the past week that the UCI will award rainbow jerseys to the under 23 women in in Australia later on this year at the World Championships um, on the road. But it's really, it's been sort of a significant gap in the female um, pathway compared to the male pathway, which has a very established under 23 circuit of races uh, across Europe, probably across the world. And so we wanted to try and provide um, in the drive to, to generate gender equality in cycling, an opportunity for women in the under 23 category to be able to develop 
And I've obviously benefited across my entire career from mentorship and, and athlete role models supporting me and, you know, really um, strong support from people who knew what they were talking about at the right time. So to be able to generate, it's now a one year program for women to come under my mentorship, for me to help them, help guide them. I'm kind of like their director of marginal gains, if you like, to help them find those small things that they can make a difference by doing and have a much bigger impact on their progress within the sport. So in 2022, we'll add three women to the current three that are are still with us from 21. And um, we'll take them through a series of events that enables them to experience um, racing. So they will see see racing happening um, with the professional peloton. And we'll do some on the bike things that will enable them to um, learn new things about themselves and ask the right questions about how they can improve. And then also some some one to one time where they can kind of share where they are at, where they'd like to be and and get my expertise on what they might do or what they might consider doing to help them along that pathway. You'll be doing a an assessment day on the 28th um, of March um, at you know your favourite place, Lee Valley Vela Park. What I'm often sort of um, yeah, quite uh, I wonder at the fact like what what goes into an assessment day because we've heard it as well, particularly with you know UK sport British cycling people doing remote assessments through the medium of things like what bike and submitting data. Swift has an, an academy and you harvest data from that and someone somewhere is presumably looking at reams of stuff like it's the matrix and going, you know, zoom in, zoom in, this person here, look at those. So when, when you're there at the track, what kind of assessments are you doing? Presumably it's not just the person that shows up and wins gets the place. No, there's a multi- multiple assessments happening. Um, so the riders are assessed on their application form first and we choose uh, 24 riders to assess on the test day um, at Lee Valley. And when they arrive at the test day, there's um, multiple people who are kind of they'll meet along the way. Um, And it's not just about their physical capability. It's also about their aptitude and their ambition and how open minded they are, just whether or not they're going to work well within the program that we have. And so that's difficult to kind of quantify, because in some ways, um, until you meet a person and uh, try and assess their personality and how well they'll benefit from what we have to offer, it's, it's slightly challenging to kind of lay that out in sort of three points. But then the physical tests are also a very good indicator because you can watch somebody, how they prepare themselves. Um, you know, their technique on the bike is also really important. And we also provide pointers. So between the tests, for example, if somebody's really really rocking and rolling on the bike and for the next test you might say just try and be you know keep your upper body still some very small simple instructions you're also seeing how they respond to those instructions because those are the types of things that you can make an impact on with somebody somebody's willingness to learn Um, and then the data is obviously very very important seeing where they're at and and every single person will get some feedback whether or not they may that they make it onto the final three or or not we'll i'll provide them with um something to take home from that day so that whether or not they were the um part of that three they'll still know which step they could take next um but the three tests we do uh three of them are on a watt bike and then the final test is out on the the closed circuit at lee valley so they get to ride the bikes outside and it's interesting to see some people who are incredibly good on a static bike but then really really struggle with the outdoor test um and sometimes you say to somebody actually if you come back next year that's probably the right frame of 
you know, time for you to improve to a level where the academy will be best placed for you. Um, because this is supposed to be at a point where they're able to then leverage the opportunity to move on and up the ladder and hopefully one day, you know, progress into professional ranks. And so they often end up racing with you guys. So you've got uh, Story Racing, which you run uh, with your husband, Barney, which is another, that, you know, that's a whole career on its own. You kicked that off in 2017. Again, like, how do you start? pro team who's what's the first phone call that you make um and what's the reaction that you get when you say hey they they know who you are by this point obviously because you're dame sarah's story but are they like ah. so what yeah what was that first phone call so we started the team in 2013 oh 13 sorry it was and it became story racing in 2017 and our first three seasons were under sponsor names so the title sponsor a little like like any team um, but our sponsors were changing on a very, well, on almost an annual basis. And the team name changed, which meant the continuity for the the media and the, the public outside of cycling was a bit confusing. So we went down the story racing route to try and create that um, sense of continuity. And so we do, we have sponsorship that um, we're trying to rebuild now because the pandemic sadly wasn't kind to the, the main sponsors that we had from a financial perspective. But what's made the team really successful is the the, um, the army of equipment sponsors with Lacole, Cask, Boardman, who have been there right from the pretty much the very beginning, certainly 2016 anyway. And since 2016, we've had a very settled set of equipment um, sponsors who really bought into the long term ambitions of Barney and I to provide as much opportunity as we could to female athletes in the UK to move up the ranks. And initially we were thinking we may well run a UCI team and we tried in 2016 and 2018, but obviously as the UCI ramp up the professionalism and the requirements, like you say, it's a full-time job and this is something we're doing as volunteers. So we've very much settled now on being a British club team. And we have women who start with us sometimes as young as the youth age groups, right the way through to masters. I'm actually the oldest on the team um, at the moment. Doesn't necessarily mean it will stay that way. But we're looking for people who have that sparkle, that ambition to be the best version of themselves. So we can help with, um, you know, mentoring some of the Skoda athletes in the past is what's happened. And a few of them have graduated onto the story racing team. Um, but from a Skoda Academy perspective this year, it's about looking after people in their path. So it doesn't matter whether they have ambitions um, to compete in story racing. They probably won't, which is fine. But our experience of running story racing in the very many different guises it's had over the last um, eight years has really provided me with a, an insight into how to guide the athletes that I work with on the academy so that I can help them. And obviously we have some good contacts and a, a good network um, and we can always talk to those director sportives from the UCI team and say, you know, keep an eye on this person or we've got this person who is developing really well. We think you should keep an eye on them in the next year or two. So those sorts of conversations are always very useful. Um, and I'm always trying to garnish the information from the Skoda Academy riders of just exactly where they'd like to be, um, as well as providing them with the information they need on the many different roles within a cycling team, because some of the most talented um, and the most loyal are domestiques for the bigger name riders within a professional team. They're perhaps less well known and, and lower profile profile as an individual but they're some of the most um important parts of the cycling team and those roles are for um for, for people to consider as well as being that kind of person who always crosses the finish line first 
Yeah, that's really cool. And I mean, how is the team looking for this year? I saw you've just taken on um, Olivia French, who I believe was used to be a tennis player. Um, do you often look for people that have come from a different sporting background? So Olivia's joining us um, for 2022. Um, it's really just a a new opportunity that the pandemic presented when a number of different sports um, saw people try cycling. There's a cross-training tool, very similar really to me. Um, and Olivia um, is still a tennis player, so she's still competing in tennis and has needed that guidance on how to kind of manage a dual career in sport. So it was um, an opportunity for us to provide that op- that, that racing uh, chance alongside um, what she's doing in tennis. She's also part of the Skoda Academy, so she's benefiting from everything that Skoda are doing and providing those um, kind of race insight opportunities, visiting the events that they're going to visit um, and working alongside riders at her level. So hopefully Olivia will um, progress to the physical capabilities of the rest of the story racing team. So she's very much in kind of like a, a different membership role at, at this point where she's focused on the regional level events and the local events with that progress towards national and potentially international level events um, in the future. But it's just an exciting array of talent and we don't kind of focus on just one discipline. So our youngest rider um, is Kat Ferguson. She's raced uh, off-road during the winter for a different team, but she races track and road for story racing in the summer months. And she's a multi-talented individual across all the disciplines. Uh, we have a, a, a couple of other paracyclists on the team who are hopefully going to be in the running for selection for Paris in 2024. Um, our master's athlete is Charlotte Parnham, and she's just one of those incredible women who showcases what you can do alongside a full-time job. She's a solicitor. She's kind of really moving up in the world, and it's a very demanding job, at, certainly at different times of the year and throughout the pandemic. She's not stopped. So she's a, an incredible example. And we're trying to appeal to people of all different backgrounds to show that you don't have to just be a full-time athlete to follow your dreams in sport, you know, to try and find the best version of you, which is our hashtag as a team. Um, it can take many different forms. So hopefully there's someone within the story racing team that will appeal you know, to everyone, someone that everyone could identify with. Um, and we obviously have the riders that are hoping to be professional one day as well. Um, and hopefully trying to move up in the world in women's racing, women's road racing. So at, at that age yourself, um, what did you or who did you find the best advice coming from? Um, which you're and what and what are you now passing on to those riders in their 20s well when I was in my 20s I'd um I competed in my third Paralympics in Sydney um so I was actually one of the elder states women within the squad um I guess the equivalent for me was when I was sort of 14 15 16 and um, being mentored by some of the older swimmers and that's the thing about cycling as you can come into it you don't race internationally um, as a senior until you're 18 whereas as a swimmer I was racing internationally as a senior at the age of 14 so for me it's about providing um that experience that I have in a, a way that somebody can adjust it to their own needs and what's happening around them, but also looking and, and making sure you take into consideration the rest of their life, because it's not just about what happens when they get on the bike, how they interact with university, how they manage their time, how they manage um, other commitments in their life, if they're working as well, 
um, can be a really big challenge and not everybody has the same path as another person. So providing those different experiences um, and a new, a potentially just a new vision. If someone's coming in from the outside and they've taken a step back, sometimes it's a little bit easier to provide that advice than when you're right there at the cold face. Um, and also knowing that you can adapt it and it's okay to make mistakes and that the whole journey is a process. And I also talk a lot about the joy of the journey. So you're not trying to get to a destination. You're trying to enjoy the path of becoming a better version of yourself, whether that's in sport, whether that's in studying, working, uh, or, or even in your personal life. Um, because even though you might get to a medal or a podium at the Olympic or Paralympic Games, quite often that's where that cliff edge appears. People have that vacuum and suddenly don't know what to do with themselves after the Games, whereas the Games is part of the journey. It's not the destination. Um, There is no destination. The whole point is to enjoy the processes along the way, learn, grow, um, and take the next day as it comes and trying to impart that knowledge and and say that you can learn just as much. uh, We probably learn more, actually, from what you might deem as a failure. It's just an opportunity to learn. You may have done it in the wrong way today, but that's just the wrong way for today. Doing it differently next time will produce a different result. It always will, whether you won or lost the day before. So it's trying to impart upon that and and give people that um, knowledge that they don't have to be uptight about um, doing something wrong um, and relaxed and enjoying something often brings out the best in you anyway. Um, and that's really all of the ethos that I try and give to people when I'm mentoring them. Is that a sort of vacuum that you found yourself falling into at any point? Because I, I came across uh, some podcaster rather um, that cited, um, cited a study of um, Olympic athletes and they're kind of like, we have our rate of perceived exertion when we're doing sport but kind of like the rate of perceived happiness post you know on the podium and typically a bronze medalist is the happiest of the three because the theory is you know you're kind of just like hey that's all that's a bit of a boosty bonus I was you know I could have taken fourth whereas the gold medalist is potentially looking straight on at the next gold medal and not even getting you know taking time to enjoy it the silver medalist is feels very hard done by is ultimately the most unhappy of the lot so can you relate to any of those things and particularly being you know the success thing did you did you find yourself to use those words falling into that kind of vacuum of I won a gold medal what next Um I think after my very first games in Barcelona I got back to school and was like oh there's a very long time until the next games um and you just want to feel and ride that high for a little bit longer so I definitely felt, um, you know, where am I going to go now? What, what this feels like I wasn't very well prepared for the next, although I had a lot to do. I started my GCSE courses the week after I got back from the games. I had a slight delay to year 10. Um, so I guess it was a very, very unusual position. But I think once I'd got used to the fact that and people spoke about other people spoke about it, you realize that you need to be prepared for the fact that you don't change as a person. I think some people get built up, especially if they're, um, you know, there's a lot of media attention. They go on to win the gold medal and actually nothing really changes. You are still the same person. You're still the person who has to get up in the morning. Nothing changes. It's just that simple. So you have to have other things to focus on and um, enjoy it, find ways to kind of um, acknowledge yourself and just give yourself a break. You don't have that moment on the podium for longer than the length of the national anthem and then the media zone afterwards. And then then you're by yourself again. 
So it's knowing that it's going to be there um, and that you do other things. I've never felt the vacuum on the podium. I've always been the happiest person on the podium. Um, for me, achieving that gold medal, personal best time or, um, you know, beating the rest of the field, retaining the title um, has always been the biggest thrill of the day. And then you know that it's going to end and you're going to go back to sleep and the next day something else is going to happen. Um, but it's not always that straightforward for everybody. What of those of those moments were, you know, the really elated gold medal type moments? What were what were the hardest fought? Now I'd imagine, for example, the hour record is probably a heap of pain um, and might be up there. But yeah, what what was the kind of hardest one victory? I think they were all hard for different reasons, which is a really sort of lame way of answering that question. Um, I didn't get the hour record and it was the most hard for for I got the British record, um, which I held until last year. Um, I missed the hour record, the world record by 500 metres, which not very far over an hour, really, although it is two laps of a track. So it's massive. <laughs> um, I think I learned a lot about myself in terms of digging deep and like focus um, within the hour record and and for that I was always grateful for the opportunity but never have a wish to repeat um, whereas a lot of the events you can you can see yourself doing them again and they're different and racing for gold medals is different to racing against the clock for the hour um, so championship events have always got a different emphasis than just that one sort of measurement of success at the end um, but every time you get on a podium, there's always been a story behind the race and particularly in road racing, you know, for example, in, um, in Rio, I had to be in, incredibly patient in the first half of the race because it was incredibly flat and we were just going up and down what felt like up and down the seafront for the first hour of the race. And it was so boring, but I had to keep my wits about me because that's where the wind was. That's where, you know, potentially echelons and crashing happens and you need to be in the right position so that when you hit the first climb, um, you go. And that's exactly what I did. And then you've got races like the individual pursuit where some days you've got like two hours between the final and the qualification, the qualification and final, which was the case in Tokyo um, or Izu. And other times you've got more like the whole day where you've got to go back. You've got to have at least one meal. You've potentially got time to have a sleep. There's all sorts of different kind of makeups to those events. And each championship comes with its own set of challenges, depending, you know, on the time. You'll never be able to predict those challenges until you're there in the moment I mean it's just yeah it's just incredible and then talking about those kind of challenges you're also a mother you're also a parent to two ch children um Louisa and Charlie so how do you fit that all into your training all these competitions you know all the academy stuff how how do you balance it all um just good time management I think my days as a swimmer have always put me in good stead but we just kind of lay out each day and we know where we're going you know I have times I block out into my work diary so that I've got time for training um, around the school run. Um, yeah, I just I just make it fit. And the help of Barney and my parents, there's always, you know, there's always somebody around to make sure that nobody forgets to pick a child up from somewhere. Uh, it does get more complicated and they get more complicated as it gets as the children get older because they have their own activities. So for example, this evening, my daughter has swimming at school after uh, after school. 
So at 3.45, lessons finished, she goes to school swimming club. I pick her up at 4.45 and then she has her own swim session at 5.15, just around the corner. So she comes out dressed in a dry swimsuit, ready to get into the next swimming pool. So shades of what I did when I was younger, um, but we just make it fit. And then I get a chance to do a little paddle and remind myself of all the techniques so that I can help them out when they're in the water. Very good. They've, I mean, they've got a lot to live up to. <laughs> With both yourself, with both yourself and Barney, do you do you have? Uh, well, I mean, you know, there'll be hopes and dreams for your for your kids, but do you ever kind of want them to go possibly down the same route as you, but maybe worry about it? Because to me, anyway, as an outsider looking at sport, it just seems like competitors get younger and younger, and the pressure gets more and more. And there are kind of you know question marks over that as a you know is it is it healthy for us as a society to be wanting to see the fastest swimmers come what may even if they're thirteen year olds who may you know that, that might interrupt their studies and they wind up not having GCSEs and don't progress you know that kind of knock on effect is there a danger that we have our our sports people competing too young? I'm glad you say you think they're getting younger because that means that I'm don't seem to be as old as I am um but I think no I think we're actually we're not as young as we used to be so the youngest Paralympic swimmer in Tokyo was a 17 year old and we had at least five who were under that age in Barcelona in 92 so I think we are sort of tempering um the youngest in the team I think we do it depends on parents there are a lot of parents who will be incredibly pushy and trying to live their lack of sporting career through their own children. I think the benefit of being an athlete, having been through it from a young age myself, um, is that I have the same approach as my parents. If you'd like to do this, I'm here to support you, but I am not taking you by the hand. You need to take me and I'll be there with you. And that's, I think, the healthiest way to approach it. Um, if you want to stop doing an activity, that's fine. I might be the sounding board to check you've made the right decision, but I won't be changing the decision. It's entirely your decision. Both my two, um, Louisa and Charlie, loves love swimming. Louisa will tell you she wants to be an Olympic swimmer. Um, Charlie wants to be an athlete. He says he wants to do sport all the time. He loves cycling. They're both good at running. So who knows, you know, but the fact that they love being active is the main you know, the main thing for me and getting more people fit and healthy and staying fit and healthy is kind of the most important. Swimming is a life skill. Being able to ride your bike and is a transport way of getting around. So it's important for day to day life. And then if you want to take it on further, then that's absolutely your choice. If it's a different sport and we have to learn a different sport, then there we go. We'll have to learn a different sport. But who knows? And they're only eight and four. So hopefully we've got a few years of deciding ahead of us. Fantastic. Well, we better let you get on because we've gone over our allotted time. But speaking of different sports, last question. Um, it would seem, you know, historically, numerically to be about the time where you switch sports. 15 years, the second round of 15 years is coming up. So are we going to be seeing you competing in triathlon? You've already got two of the three. I don't like to do open water unless it's in Australia. So there's no chance you'll find me in the Thames. <laughs> right. On that note. Fair enough. On that note. If any, if anyone can uh, yeah, clean up the Thames, then we might have um, another few medals, but that's probably quite unlikely. <laughs> Dame Sarah Story, thank you very much for joining us. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat. Uh, right. That was... Uh, 
Dame Sarah story. Um, we were allowed to call her Sarah. We did ask her at the beginning of the call what she prefer. Um, I'm just kind of bowled over talking to someone that has just been doing. I've, she's almost for as long as I've been alive. She's been winning gold medals. Um, I don't know how does that how does that make you feel? Ever? I mean, she's been winning them way longer than I've been alive, and she's just still winning them. And she's doing all these other incredible projects as well on the side. And she's balancing a million and one things. It's mind blowing. Well, yeah, that's I mean, that's that's another thing. It, we didn't even get around to it. This is how many you know how many hats she has is uh, being the active. What is it? The um, active commissioner for South Yorkshire, which basically means um, trying to make sure people don't you know drive cars around and we have nice places to walk and to cycle to, um, which is just it's just ridiculous. And I just wonder, is it possible? Are we, we, there, there are just people who are just better. There's just there's so many <laughs> people out there that are better than us. Like, yeah. I don't know what time. What time do you get up in the morning, for example? Not early enough, is what I feel now. Yeah, <laughs> I was literally thinking, right, I'm gonna listen, like take in what she's just said. I'm going up at five thirty tomorrow to go swimming, like, to go cycling. <laughs> yeah, it's but it's just beggar's belief. I just don't understand where you get enough hours in the day, and then when you actually want to like have some kind of social life um on top of that and then you also have kids which i don't have any kids but i just cannot imagine i can't i'm i'm in awe (laughs) (laughs) but we still have much of our lives to go um what are you going to switch to what are you personally emma going to switch to next as your career you got you got to choose something your new career my new career well i mean the Winter Olympics is on, so maybe I'll do uh, curling or um, bobsleigh. I, I think that yeah. looks pretty fun. Or downhill skiing. I'm, I'm thinking something wintry. Something wintry. I feel like you could probably. I don't. Wanna, I don't want to do down curlers because I bet it's. I bet it's like proper hard and that. Mm. But I feel like maybe you could. One could learn curling <laughs> in a way where I'll probably never be very good yeah. at uh, ski long jump. For example, it looks insane when they just—that's the one where they fly through the air, right? Yeah. Oh, unbelievable! Also, the cross-country one where they have to—they shoot. You know, they run a bit, they shoot a bit, they ski a bit. Biathlon. That's the one. Yeah, that's weird. That's one of those weird ones where you kind of think people go, you know, who are the fittest people on earth? And then I think biathletes typically have had the highest VO2 maxes. I think there was a Danish cyclist who. A young guy who didn't hang around in cycling, and there were, you know, kind of overtures of cycling just didn't treat him very well, and left him feeling basically, you know, with some mental, most serious um, kind of well-being issues. Uh, and I'm pretty sure he had like a VO2 max of like 96 or something. Um, Greg LeMond was famously like 92, but then in between that, there've been quite a few. Um, uh, yeah, biathletes uh, and kind of cross-country skiers that like test in the nineties, which is just insane. I don't. Have you ever had your VO two max? No, taken? I have not. Have you? Yeah, because my, mine's like fifty three. <laughs> <And I'm> like, <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. Mine's probably lower. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, it is, it is one that I hide behind the fact that a lot of it is supposed to be hereditary and it doesn't. Uh, it's yes. not a massive pre- predictor of uh, ability, but it's a pretty good one. And I, I consider myself relatively fit. And you're like someone else is basically almost double as fit as me they're pumping around twice as much oxygen in their bloodstream i mean how are we supposed to compete with that we just can't (laughs) we just can't (laughs) well on that note i don't think we can compete with sarah 
we can't compete with biathletes with 96 VOT maxes. Um, but hopefully this has been a fun enough podcast and we're not too bad at that. So I hope you all uh, join us uh, in a fortnight's time where our guest will be, insert name here. We do have several guests lined up, but we haven't decided which one we're going to drop. But uh, Emma, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Excellent. It's been been a pleasure. And yeah, thanks again to uh, Dame Sarah Story. <laughs>